For some of you guys, welcome back. Uh, it's been a minute since we've been up here doing this. It's been actually exactly a month. So for those of you who are new or for those of you who are joining us uh, tonight, we are starting our new series in Philippians, as you can see right up there behind me. Uh, we're starting in Philippians, and what's going to happen is basically over the next 10 weeks, Bob and I are going to go back and forth and just kind of walk you through this book verse by verse. And it's going to be awesome, just in my own study time and, and everything that we've learned through this. It's, it's going to be a good, good unit, and, and we're so excited for it, uh, and we're so excited for this series. Okay, a little history lesson. A couple things about Philippians before we get started, okay? Philippians is a letter, okay? It's a letter written to the church at Philippi, okay? Philippi, Philippians. It's a letter written by Paul. You guys know Paul. He used to be Saul. He used to persecute Christians and hate Christians. And then on, his, on the road to Damascus, he was heading to this place called Damascus, and Jesus kind of broke through into his life changed his life, gave him a whole new identity. When Christ changes our lives, we literally become a new person. Uh, and his name, his name actually changes to Paul. Okay, And Paul, this guy, he's the one who wrote this letter to the church at Philippi called Philippians. A couple things about Philippi. Where is Philippi? What does that mean? Is it in the United States? Is it, in, is it Florida? Where is Philippi? Philippi isn't, do you like that? Philippi is in... Um, is in modern-day Greece. So if you look at a map and you see Greece, Greece kind of has makes kind of a crescent moon shape, okay? Right here at the top, in the middle of Greece, next to what's called the Aegean Sea, there is Philippi, or there was Philippi. You guys ever heard of, and again, I'm not going to be a quiz, so don't freak out. Do you guys know uh, Alexander the Great? You ever heard of Alexander the Great? He, kinda, he, conquered, he conquered most of the known world at that time in his life. Okay, here we go. His dad... Philip II, when he conquered this area, he named it after himself, Philippi. That's where the name comes from, okay? Philippi, at this time in Paul's life, Philippi is a Roman colony, okay? So think about in America, we used to be the 13 colonies we, we were colonies of Britain. We had British practices. We gave Britain all our money. We were their colony. It's the same thing here with Philippi and Rome, okay? Philippi was an extension of Rome. They sent all their money to Rome. They were taxed by Rome, okay? And they had Roman gods and all this other, all this other good stuff. Well, not good stuff, but you get it. Um, before Paul, but here's the thing. Before Paul can write a letter to the church at Philippi, there has to be a church at Philippi. Make sense? Before Paul can write a letter to the church at Philippi, there has to be a church at at Philippi, and you guys actually know a lot of its founding members. Turn to Acts chapter 16. And if you don't have a Bible, try to look on with somebody else. Turn to Acts chapter 16, and we'll be in verse 12. And while you guys are turning there, this is the story of kind of how the church at Philippi was founded, how these people were founded. When Paul writes, the, when Paul writes Philippians, who is he writing to? And we're going to meet some of these people. So again, Acts chapter 16, and we'll be in verse 12. And this is about Paul and his missionary friends going to Philippi. Here we go. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for several days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Okay, two things that we noticed from there, okay? One, 
is where they were meeting. Did you catch it? It says, they, verse 13, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside. So the gate was surrounding the city, so that no one would attack the city. So they went outside the gate, which means they went outside the city to the riverside, okay? They went outside the gate, and it's all women. Did you catch that? They went to the group of women who were praying there. Those two things are actually related, and here's how. In this day and age, in this time, in biblical times, there had to be a minimum of 10 Jewish men in a city or a town. And if there were, then you could build a synagogue. And then you could worship in the synagogue in the city. But if there were less than 10 Jewish men, you couldn't build the synagogue, so you had to go outside the city. And we know that it's a group of all women, so there were no Jewish men. They couldn't build the synagogue. That's why they're outside. Okay? And then if you look at the tail end of that verse, at the end of verse 14, it says... Um, we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. I'm sorry, verse 13. We were supposing there would be a place of prayer. We sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. They had assembled. what, What does that mean? What does that look like? This gives us a very cool look at what church was like in Jesus's day, okay? So Jesus has died. He's been resurrected. He has risen to heaven, but what was church like right during that time? Like this, when we're in church, so what was that like during that time? Well, we know it says it was a place of prayer, so we know that there was prayer going on. They probably sang, and they weren't blessed like we are to have been in the band up here singing, so they, had, they sang hymns of their day, and these hymns were psalms, okay? The psalms, the book of psalms, they would sing these. So there's singing, there's praying, and the other thing that they had, they were probably reading from the Old Testament. Think about what time period this is, okay? Jesus has just died. And for those of you who don't know, the Bible is divided into the Old Testament and the New Testament. There was no New Testament at this time. It's, still, it's not even being written yet. It's still being lived out right here, okay? So they're singing from the Old Testament. They're praying from the Old Testament. And they are studying from the Old Testament, okay? The one thing that's missing from their Bible study, the one thing that's missing from the lives of these people is Jesus Christ. And this is why it's such a, a blessing and such a cool thing that we have the Old Testament and the New Testament. But here's the other thing. How often does this happen in our own lives? How often are we just like this group of women? It's Wednesday, so we come to the spot, right? We meet at the spot. We're singing the songs, we're praying the prayers, we're doing the church thing, we're studying the scriptures, and there's, but there's no Jesus in it. Enter Paul and his missionary friends. Paul begins to preach the gospel to these people, okay? Paul begins to share the gospel. What does that mean, though? Like, the gospel, what is that? When I say the gospel, when I say Paul shares the gospel, I mean Paul shared the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he was a real person, he really died, and he really came back from the dead, and that should change things. And so Paul begins to share that. But remember, there is no New Testament. What are they studying from? Tell me, what are they studying from? The Old Testament, exactly. So they're studying from the Old Testament, so Paul begins to show them how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. How the Old Testament is pointing to him. He is the one that the Old Testament is pointing to. And while this is happening, verse 14 and 15 happens. While Paul is teaching them. Look at verse 14 and 15. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. 
And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Okay, we meet our first founding member. We meet Lydia. Lydia is from Thyatira. Okay, And to give you guys a little perspective, Thyatira is about 240 miles from Philippi. Okay, 240 miles is a long way for these times, but it's a long way for today. Even when we have cars, 240 miles is a long way. Just to put it, put it into perspective for you guys a little bit, Phillips Arena, where the Hawks play in Atlanta, is almost exactly 70 miles from this building. Okay, 70 miles. Philippi is 240 miles from Thyatira. So she's way out here. And yet when she, when she gets saved, she invites Paul into her house, Right? So that tells us that she probably has a house in Philippi and Thyatira. She's a seller of purple goods. She's in the fashion industry. She's probably here on business. But don't miss the most important part of this, okay? She's in church. She's singing the songs. She's praying the prayers. She's doing the church things. And that does not make her a Christian. Clearly, it hadn't happened yet. And then she hears the gospel preached. And look at verse 14 again. And a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabric, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. What happened? Jesus broke through. In love, he broke through her darkness during Paul's preaching. He breaks through her darkness during Paul's preaching. And that, and that so much just reminds me of, of my story, of my own story. And Bob knows my story, and um, I've talked to Misty about it. We've hit on it just a little bit uh, at Passion a couple years ago. And then last year, um, when Reed and I and Eli were on the way back from SLU, we talked about it a little bit. But just to kind of give you the tail end, and we'll, we'll talk about this at some point, but just to give you kind of the tail end of it, it's, it's uh, February 2013, very, very dark spot of my life, very late at night, and I'm reading this book called Crazy Love by Francis Chan, which is just about God's love for us. And in the middle of the chapter, it's kind of about how we give our leftovers to God and how that's a bad thing. And what I mean is, you know, instead of giving God the main parts of us, we just give him kind of the leftovers and how that's bad. And, and I had heard that, you know, a thousand times before. And you guys have heard that a thousand times. It's time to, you know, start getting real and start getting serious. And and I had heard that thousands of times, and, and, but all of a sudden, that time, it just went bam. And, and, I, and I, you know, you know, and I realized, that you're real? I had no idea. I had no idea that, that you were real. And it just broke through. Lydia was wealthy. She was diligent in Bible study. She had a house in Philippi. She had a house in Thyatira. She had all these things, but she didn't have him. And that day, she realized he was all she needed. Has that, has that happened to you yet? I pray that it does. I pray that it happens tonight. And with that, Lydia becomes the first Christian in the history of Europe and the first Christian and, and, the, and the first 
founder of the church at Philippi. So Lydia has become the first Christian in the history of Europe and the founder of the church at Philippi. Let's look at our next two founders and then we'll move on. Uh, Next up is our slave girl, verses 16 through 18. It happened that as they were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met, and I'll explain this, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bond servants of the Most High God, who are, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued with this for many days, but, and I love this, but Paul was greatly annoyed. And turned to her and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Okay, so you have this Greek, this is our next founder. You have this Greek slave girl. She has a spirit of divination, which in that day it was she had a demon. She might have been able to tell the future. We don't really know that for sure. But she's going around harassing Paul and Silas. And as she's harassing Paul and Silas, listen to what she says in verse 17. She cried out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming the way of salvation. Servants of the Most High God proclaiming the way of salvation. Please don't miss the fact that she got all the words exactly right. She got all the words exactly right. In in our day and age, we put so much emphasis on the words. Did you say the prayer right when you were little? Did you say it right? And then later on in your life, you begin to doubt, and your first thought is, well, did I not, did I not say the prayer the right way? Did I, do, I need to say, do I need to say the prayer again? Guys, she said the prayer right. And clearly, at that moment, her heart was not his. I look, I look around, and I'm very, and listen, I'm very thankful. I'm very thankful because we got a lot of church kids up in here, right? And, and I'm glad, I'm thankful, thank God your parents have done that. I am a church kid. But here's the thing, church kids are very good with the words. You guys can have good conversations about Jesus all day, but is your heart His? Paul makes sure. He, he, he prays and asks the Lord for help. And instead of kind of getting to this slave girl through her mind, like it was with Lydia, like through teaching, the Holy Spirit just, just goes straight after her heart. And it kicks all the evil out so that he can make room for himself in there. Now, with no spirit, she can no longer tell the future. And her owners are not too pleased about that. So they take Paul and Silas and they throw them in jail. Okay? Uh, And in jail, this is where we meet our third and final founder of the Philippian church. Look at verses 23 and 24. Acts chapter 16, verses 23 and 24. When they had struck them with many rods, they threw Paul and Silas into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Okay, so it's as if they're saying they beat these guys with rods, and it's as if they're saying, make sure they don't escape. And this guy says, oh, don't worry, they won't. And so he takes them, and he puts them in what's called the inner prison, okay? The inner prison, picture a prison, the inner prison is either um, at the bottom, right? At the bottom of the prison, at the bottom of the prison, right? Um, 
Yeah, with like, there's probably a joke in there somewhere, but we're just going to move on. Uh, they put him at the bottom of the prison, right? At the bottom of the prison is called the inner prison, or in the center of the prison. It's the innermost part of the prison. If you're, it's the hardest place to escape. If you're planning an escape, this is not the place to do it, okay? So they're in the innermost prison. And then it says they fasten their feet in the stocks. Now, when we think of stocks, we think of like, like the pilgrims, and they put you in the arm thing with the neck, and like, I don't really understand what this accomplishes, you know, and the whole thing. That's, that's what we picture when we think of the stocks. That's not what it's like in these times. You remember it says they put their feet in the stocks, okay? Um, stocks are essentially, at this point in time, holes in the ground that continue to get wider and wider, and they force your legs to go wider and wider, and they're supposed to force cramping. And this cramp works its way up your legs. And it's this horrible, horrible process. Okay? Now, most of you guys probably know, and some of you at least, know this part of the story. Instead of moaning out in agony and pain, Paul and Silas begin singing hymns and songs. Okay? You just can't beat this guy. You just can't do it. And they begin, they begin singing songs and hymns. And in the night, in the prison cell... The Lord sends an earthquake, and the earthquake is so intense, it essentially destroys all the doors to the prison, and it breaks the walls down, so all the chains fall off. So, so it literally just destroys the prison. And now Paul and Silas have a clear-cut way out of there. Look at verse 27. And when I find it, we'll read it. Verse 27. When the jailer awoke... And we'll come back to that. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners escaped. This guy loves his job too much. He loves his job so much. That's why he has locked these guys. And remember, these guys are missionaries. They're not killing anybody. They're not beating anybody up. They're not doing any of that. But he does all this horrible, torturous punishment to them. He worships his job. It has consumed him. And now, this job that he loves too much, this false idol, has led to his death. When you were a soldier in these times, if you failed your post, you had to pay for it with your life. So this job that he worships and loves so much, this false idol, this thing other than God that he worships so much, has led to his death. All false idols do this in the end. All of them lead to destruction, and death. Look at verse 28 and 29. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all still here. And, he called, and the man called for lights and rushed in, and trembling he, with fear, he fell down at Paul and Silas' feet. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's as if Paul was waiting to say, this false God that you love so much, that you worship so much, your job, this false God leads to death. I know a God who brings life. And think about it. Okay, there's this prison. And in this prison, there's an earthquake that is so mind-bendingly intense that it destroys the prison. And it destroys all the doors to the prison and all of the chains that are holding everybody back in the prison. And this guy sleeps through it. Did you catch that? Because it said when he awoke. And I looked this up and I thought, surely this means like he got knocked out. Like it's not that hard to believe. Like the earthquake knocks down part of the prison. It lands on him. It knocks him unconscious. And then when he comes to, he sees everybody gone. 
But this word specifically means to rouse from sleep. It does not mean to rouse from unconsciousness. He literally woke from sleep. And you say, well, how? what is that? Guys, it's obvious. God is already working in this guy's life. God wants this guy to stay asleep so that he can see, so he can wake up and see his prisoners gone, his job failed, his idol dead. And then he makes Paul stay so that Paul can say to this man, your idol leads to nothing. My God leads to eternal life. God could have just had him die, right, in the earthquake. Why not just kill him? But if he had died, he would have gone to hell. But God orchestrates it so this man is safe. He sleeps through the earthquake and he wakes up. He keeps him alive long enough to kill his idol so that then God can be all that he has left. And with those three people in Philippi, the Philippian church was born. Years later, Paul is in prison in Rome again. Well, he's in prison again, this time in Rome. There we go. And from the dark depression of his cell, in his chains, he writes a letter to these people. He writes a letter to the church at Philippi. And it is one of the most joy-filled letters ever. And guys, the only reason that this letter can be filled with joy is Jesus Christ. Because look at the, the lengths that Jesus went to to establish this church. Think about the memories that, that he's got to have with these people through special experiences that he's had with these people. Don't you think Paul's heart just leaps for joy every time he thinks of these guys? And we see that a lot in the first few verses of Philippians chapter 1. So let's actually go there. Flip over to Philippians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Do you guys know General Electric Power Company? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, General Electric. Okay, good. I'm glad you guys, my church kids are like, yeah, oh my gosh, yeah. Uh, and everyone else is like, well, uh, power company, what in the world? Uh, okay, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, okay? So, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 2, and we'll just kind of break it down one at a time. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, look at how much this church has grown in this time that Paul's been away. It started with literally the three most random people maybe ever meeting in Lydia's house. And now it's grown to the point that they need overseers, which means elders. And then, you know, what is an elder? Um, this church, we have deacons, right? We have deacons meeting. Some of you guys, you, your parents are deacons. But we also have elders. And Bob and I talk about this all the time because we, we do. We have elders. We just don't call them that. Bob, Matt, Clyde, Eric, these are the elders of the church. So this church has grown so much in Philippi that they need elders and they need deacons. They can't have just three people doing it on themselves. So these guys have grown, and it's just this awesome thing. And then we look at verses 3 through 4. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Okay, there's a lot of prayer and a lot of joy. Um, the word prayer in verses 3 and 4, it means to ask for something. 
So every time Paul goes before the Lord to ask for something, if you're praying for somebody, you got to think about that person. Does that make sense? So whenever Paul goes to pray for them, whenever Paul goes to ask for something from God for these people, he thinks about them and his heart explodes with joy and as he remembers them with joy. And we get a picture of why he is so joyful in verse 5. For I, let's see, that's verse 6, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. One more time. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So in view of, so if you're viewing something, you're looking at it, right? So Paul is viewing the church at Philippi. He's watching them. He's visiting them. He's sending other people to visit them, and he's hearing about what they've done. In view of, so he's watching them, in view of your partnership in the gospel. So they're his partners in the gospel. They stand with Paul now. They're doing missions over here. He's doing missions over here. They're working together as partners in the gospel now. So in view of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Well, what in the world? The first day. What is the first day of the Philippian church? Well, we just read about it. He meets Lydia on the first day. And then several days later, he meets the slave girl. And then the night after that, he meets the jailer. What a beginning. What a first day. And he's looking back on this and remembering them. He remembers when these people were born again. To be born again is another way of saying you're becoming a Christian. You become a new person. You get a new heart. You are born again. Paul remembers when they were born again. In 1 Timothy 1, you don't have to turn there. In 1 Timothy 1, 2, Paul calls Timothy, Timothy, you are my child in the faith. 1 Corinthians 4, 15, Paul says, you have many teachers in Christ, but only one father in him. For I became your father through the gospel. Paul went to them. Paul was there when they became Christians. Paul was teaching when they became Christians. He is their father in the gospel. Look at me. Paul is watching his spiritual children grow up. That's kind of the feeling and the attitude and the joy in this passage. He's watching his spiritual children grow up. And then we come to verse 7, and then we'll, and then we'll be finished here. Verse 7. For it is only, and it's a long one, but I'll explain. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in my defense of the gospel, you are partakers of grace with me. So you're a partaker of grace with me. Partake. Uh, if you're sitting at dinner and you're eating the dinner, you are partaking of the dinner. Does that make sense? Okay, Shakespeare people, you're partaking of the dinner. Um, they are partakers of grace with him. So they're taking in grace with Paul. But how are they doing that? How do we do that? So first of all, Paul says, I hold you in my heart. Okay, that, that means then exactly what it means now. To have something in your heart, your heart is the center of your thoughts and feelings. Okay, The center of your thoughts and feelings. So Paul, I hold you in my heart, and you are taking in grace with me. And he says, he says through defending the gospel with me, and through sharing in my imprisonment, Sharing in my imprisonment. So that means if Paul's in prison, where are they? Prison, right? Okay. Through defending the gospel and through sharing in prison with me, you are taking in grace. How does that work? What does that look like? 
forfeiting years of their lives by spending them, years of their lives, guys, by spending them in prison and ruining their reputation and ruining their good standing by defending the gospel, which is not a popular belief at the time, through those two things, they are taking in grace. How does that work? What does that mean? This is how they're doing that, guys. Okay, look at me, and then you can tune out, okay? The fullest, this is how they're taking in grace, through going to jail, through, through losing popularity, through getting nasty looks, through losing seats at the lunch show, through all these things. This is how they're taking in grace. Paul calls them partakers of grace. This is how. The fullest life comes through giving it up. The fullest life comes through giving it up. They're saying, we have forfeited our lives to Jesus, and by doing so, we have found them. We have forfeited our lives to Jesus, and by doing so, we have found our lives. Let me, let me put it to you like this. Christmas is coming up, right? Everybody's excited. Christmas is coming up. Imagine or remember, there's a particular gift that you're going to get, okay? A particular gift that you are going to get, but not until Christmas. You know it's coming. You know you're going to get it. Nikes, whatever, you're going to get it. You just got to wait till Christmas, okay? Now, what's going to happen between then and Christmas? You're going to think about it all the time. You're going to be weird, and like you're going to pull it up online sometimes and just stare at it, and like a weird thing's going to happen there. You, it comes up at least once a week in conversation. Just, you just bring it up out of nowhere, right? It's, it's in your heart, right? It's at the center of your thoughts and feelings. It's in your heart. Christmas rolls around, and you don't get it, okay? And your family tells you this, you know, we love you, but this year we just, we just didn't have it, so you don't get it. Now, here, here's the thing. It's okay to be miffed at that. I get that. You wanted it. I get that. It's okay to be miffed, but you're not miffed. You go postal, okay? And you just go nuclear, you're yelling, and some of you like, mm-hmm, you're yelling at everybody. You've kind of, you kind of, you're in a bad mood all day. You've kind of ruined everybody else's day, okay? Or there's this one. And some of you this has happened to, and some of you, you know people that this has happened to, but there are people who, they get a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Yeah, now you're going to listen. There are people who, they get a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and they just disappear, Right? They just fall off the face of the earth and all your friends and you're just like, what happened? Why am I telling you these two examples? Because, look, come here, listen to me. That Christmas gift that you wanted, the fullest life comes through giving it up. That Christmas gift that you wanted so bad and that you didn't get and you got so angry at your family when you didn't get it, you don't own that thing. It owns you. It has affected every part of your life. You do not own that. It owns you. That relationship that takes you away from everyone, that takes you away from your friends, and it's not your boyfriend or girlfriend's what you want to go. And tell me if this sounds familiar. You could have a terrible day in life. Terrible day. But if things are going good with you and the one you're dating, you've had a good day. Or you could have a great day in life. A great day. Xbox, puppy, the whole thing, right? You have a great day. But if things are going bad, 
between you and the person you're dating? How's your day been? Terrible. Guys, I read the Bible a lot, and that sounds a lot like a God to me. That spot is reserved for God. And that person that you're dating, whether they know it or not, that's not your boyfriend or your girlfriend. That's your master. You get the fullest life by letting it go. Most of you know the story of Esther. And for those of you who don't, you're getting kind of the spark note right here. Esther hid her Jewish identity, right? She hid her Jewish identity. She didn't tell anybody else about it. And that guaranteed that she would become the queen of Persia. Okay, which is not a Jewish nation. So she hides her Jewish identity. She becomes the queen of Persia. And while she is a queen, she is totally submissive in the worst way. She never argues her own points. She never speaks out of turn. She does exactly as she's told, even if it's sinful. She does exactly what she's told, even if it's sinful. Until finally... The king is plotting to kill the Jews, which are Esther's people. And Esther has to go before the king and beg for the life of her people and admit that she is a Jew. But she has to go before him unannounced, which is forbidden. You can't go to the king unless he calls you first. She is risking her life to do this, but she puts on her royal robes and she does it anyway. She goes before the king unannounced. She risks her life. She essentially gives up her life for her people. Do you know what the Bible calls her in Esther chapter 5 when she does this? Queen Esther. It's the first time in the whole book that it calls her queen. She's been queen since chapter 2, but it doesn't call her queen until chapter 5. Why? Because up until that point, she hasn't done anything that a queen should do for her people. Because she's too afraid that she's going to lose the crown. Don't miss it. Up until that point, she hadn't been wearing the crown. The crown had been wearing her. Until she truly gave it up for the life of her people. Then the Bible calls her Queen Esther. C.S. Lewis says it like this and then we'll be done. Listen to this. You'll never truly Own something that you refuse to give up. You will never truly own something that you refuse to give up. Until that point, it owns you. That's why the Philippian church is called partakers of grace. Because they gave up their lives, and in giving up their lives, they found them. Lydia was owned by her wealth. The slave girl was owned by anger and others. The jailer was owned by his job, and God took all of those things away from them. He made them essentially give up their lives so that he could make them partakers of grace. And Christ will do that for you. He is all that you need, and he will take your idols from you, but why not give them to him instead?